Hello, I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to a Private View podcast. Today's podcast is an hour-long special with artists from the summer of 2021. Uh, there's six artists, starting with Afea Taguri, then Devin Desjardins, Harry Cartwright, Joshua Donkar, Jesse Stevenson, and Benjamin Spires. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Orfeo Taguri, say your name. I say Orfeo Taguri. Taguri. Where did O'Leary go? Because that is so easy for Maeve Doyle to say. This is true. Well, the there were three thing is, parts or- of your Orfeo, name. Orfeo, Fritz, O'Leary, Taguri. But I figured there was too much of a mouthful for everyone. But yeah, that's Mexican, German, Irish, Italian grandparents in order. <laughs> And you have lived in London since when? Where were you born? Because your your accents, American. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Moved to Yorkshire when I was five. Moved down to London when I was seven. Back to the States when I was nine. Then back to here. Then back and forth a bit. Yeah, I did a bit of that with Canada. So I get how mixed up. And I bet you've gone through phases in the in-betweens where you sounded more British and then less. And Mm -hmm. then when I came back to England the last time in 2009, there were so many Americans here that I didn't, my my accent didn't really get that changed. Whereas when I moved here in the 80s, it it was deeply affected and impacted by Mm -hmm. it. Did you have a Yorkshire accent at one point? I did really briefly. And then I, my two older brothers were both living in the States. And I think I was just so used to imitating them that even when I was in England and they were in the States, I was still stealing their accent a bit. It ties into what the we were talking about at the top of the show for uh, London Gallery Weekend. I was mentioning taking people to see Frank Bowling's show. And he, of course, is the painter with Hauser and Worth who spent the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s living in between... New York and London, mm-hmm. uh, how both of those worlds and landscapes affected his painting. For him, there's a canvas that's the, the British landscape tradition affected by American abstract expressionism. Mm. For you, when I went in and saw Sapling Gallery and, and the wood and the uh, metaphor of the hammer, but then is it there's a printmaking technique on a canvas presentation, but it's wood. So you're fusing sculpture with painting, with printmaking, with storytelling. Take it away. Tell me what's going on. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that all of those were references to pre-existing forms in an art world or in an art situation. Because the majority of the the ways in which I think about it would be to do with a sort of real world or almost mundane quotidian situation where something like the wood surfaces scratched in that way are very akin to you know trees where lovers scratch their initials or desks where a sort of daydreaming student you know I do sort know. of gets themselves in trouble a little bit and for me it's those maybe those sources which are so full of a kind of poetry of everyday life that I'm very much drawn to. Uh, and I think that might be kind of the origin of those those ideas. But yeah, as you, 
as you referenced, I mean, I was at the Slade Art School and I really had an opportunity to dig in, especially with the printmaking facilities there, to really immerse myself in a whole world of etchings, screen printings, engravings. And so I was kind of familiar with these processes of having a form in front of you and then scraping away to reveal a new form. Graduates from schools and who we watch move in trends in the 90s and 80s, it was Goldsmiths, and sometimes it's Chelsea, other times it's St. Martin's, but consistently for the last five years anyway, it's been Slade. What was your experience like there? Oh, it was great. It was really wonderful. I was in the painting department, which uh, I was quite happily, I felt in the painting department that my work sort of occupied an outsider role, which potentially everyone feels within their departments, but I wasn't doing too much painting. And for me, my favorite moments and experiences of the time at Slade were when students had to talk about their work specifically. Everyone was asked to do a brief lecture about it. And what was really revealed for me was that so much of engaging with an artwork even if it's one that you initially didn't like as you were walking through the studios, comes through understanding what someone's intention was and what their worldview is as they're going into making it. And as soon as you have that kind of access where someone spent 20 minutes trying to explain their process, it's suddenly so enlivened. There was a really wonderful artist called Zara Idelson who painted a series of black circles and chalk drawings. And I really hadn't fully connected with them. And then she explained that for some reason, the roundabouts in London just made her deeply sad. And she was really just trying to investigate why this was. And it really activated something for me in her work. And so that was very revealing to me. So what, what extends out of that for, for me is we then look at the art world as a whole and I agree that we sometimes need people to bridge the gap between what the viewer sees on the wall or or in a gallery and what the artist has been archiving through their subconscious or through kind of feeling out vibes within city or working and building on art history. When you graduate from school, those conversations are harder to have. And it that makes me sad, as well as the roundabouts and mm. her work. I mean, it makes me sad that those conversations become uh, thought of as, well, there's no time for them. People don't want to hear what they call art babble or pretentious mm-hmm. talk. The, the judgment is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently I was doing an art tour with someone and he said to me, I, I don't really need to hear any of this. All people want to know is how much money they're going to make back on the work they're buying and when they're going to make it back. And that's where we're at in my world at the moment. I'm thrilled that I get to come to Soho Radio twice a week and talk about art and bring people like you into the studio. But when you graduated, you had about six months before we went into a pandemic. So where were you feeling the need for those conversations that actually bring you deeper into the practice of making art? Mm. This this is a great question. And I think um, I was very fortunate that at the 
as one of our final assignments at school, we had to write an essay about five of our favorite artworks. And my essay happened to have very few references to artists who had shown in institutions or who were currently showing gallery spaces. And I spoke to the tutors at the time, to Lisa Milroy, who was the head of Slade Painting at the time, and they offered me a list, an enormous list of artists. And I kind of did this sort of retrospective process of trying to build a sort of ancestry or lineage of my own art practice by reading through just tons of books about various artists who I felt had informed my practice. And not always visual artists, sometimes musicians, writers... Uh, poets, all sorts of things, filmmakers. And so that was an opportunity. Oh, don't of. keep us guessing. Who are the artists? Oh, uh, well, again, it's kind of... Keep looking that way. All right. There. Again, it's an, it's an interesting question because although my work, especially appearing in Sapling at the moment, is very visually based, a lot of the artists are figures who I feel conjured their own kind of mythology or worldview very specifically. So for instance, Onkawara, oh. Yoko Ono. There's an artist called David Horvitz, who's LA based, who I really admire. Onkawara, if you're wondering, dated. Everything was a date and he, he punctuated his life by documenting it. And there's this theory in art history that you don't exist if you don't document it. Mm. Um, the postcards, he was writing postcards to another artist. I, it's not Ed Ruscha, but I thought it was, where he was just sending them dates. Yeah. It's fantastic. The fantastic. time he woke up and things like that. Yes. And, and Yoko Ono, the cut piece, mm -hmm. completely overshadowed by... The Beatles, she's so an important fluxus movement. Mm -hmm. Talk, you talk about David Horowitz. I'm not as deeply involved with his work, but I do, I am familiar with it. Well, David Horvitz is who Horvitz. I'm thinking of. Yeah, who is, um, he's an LA based artist who shows quite often in Paris, I believe, but he's done some really wonderful projects. There was one I went and saw where he had created a sort of inverted constellation in Paris. And his inspiration was the fact that at a certain moment, maybe in the early 20th century in Paris, when they were adding more streetlights and more electric lights to the city, there was a sort of outcry that the stars were going to be lost from sight. You know, when you have too much urban light pollution, you lose track of the stars above. And he made this inverted constellation in response to that by going around the city and extinguishing various street lamps. And then on a map within the city, he hole punched so you could see what his constellation of the city had been. And it was really very beautiful. It's also playing on the idea of street art and the gallery, mm -hmm. the city being the best gallery. Mm -hmm. um, Important. I'm really sad. We're running out of time. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Thank you I so much to. for Thank coming you so in much today. For I'm here with Devin Desjardins, and as you know, if you've listened to the show before, Devin is a self-taught multimedia artist from California. He was born in 1993. Uh, his youth was crafting art and fashion and specializing in menswear. He graduated from 
Azua? Azusa. Did, Azusa. Yeah, yeah. Pardon me. Mm-hmm. Pacific University. And during his college years, he studied world religions and how different cultures presented the narrative of a spiritual protection before, ex- before exploring these ideas and narratives on canvas and in sculpture. Mm-hmm. I saw the Easter Island similar pieces the, yeah. the ones that always spring to mind at the tate yesterday and yeah were there not a, a one-way system in place i would have ran through and got a shot for you but you yeah. know the ones <laughs> i'm talking about yeah and the fact that you found another universe an alternative way of living mm-hmm. in the art world is i think what drew us to each other because yeah. that that belief that you can create a world for yourself through creativity and mm-hmm. that it takes a lot of the day in day out trauma out of life yeah. i relate to as well yeah, yeah. and the details for any of us don't even matter it's yeah. the fact that we all met there in the middle yeah i agree during the pandemic your career accelerated yeah it really did how take us back to you were here last in july and i know a lot's happened since then a lot, yeah okay go yeah uh i think it's been almost a year and a half since i've seen you something like that i mean nice to see you almost two years yeah it's wonderful nice to see you to again see you. yeah i think the last time we spoke i had just come off my first solo exhibition with coats and scary in los angeles um it was a wonderful experience just learning um you know how to present work for the first time ever and then after that i was found myself in kind of a situation of trying to figure out what was next and i think as artists we're always trying to expand our narrative expand our our creative uh thread and i was looking for either some sort of representation or do i stay independent and keep trying to build my own own career and I got an amazing opportunity from um, a lady and gentleman uh, that owned this gallery called Denk, D-E-N-K, in Los Angeles. And they have this beautiful, I think it's about a 5,000 square foot warehouse in the Arts District. It's just a beautiful, beautiful space. And they presented it to me saying, hey, you know, we'd love for you to come in and work in here for a month and see what you can do. That month turned into two, which turned into three. And I've been there ever since. And I've continued just to... uh, to build and, and work on stuff that I've really wanted to touch on. And I was able to put together a body of work over the last uh, two years. Honestly, I was working on it when I saw you. Um, and we just had that show in April. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty kick-ass. There was a lot of people that showed up. Um, the, I, I, it was the first time that I felt very, very strong showing my work and felt that um, I was very happy with what came about. Um, but now I'm back into work mode and trying to figure out, uh, once again, what is next and, uh, what I want to touch on and how I want to continue my narrative and, and touch on certain topics. Um, yeah. What was different about the last show for you? I think it was just, I was at a better place of being able to take my time and be patient with the work. Um, I feel like there was definitely some, some previous struggle with feeling that some of the work had been rushed um, or was just kind of forced upon. And now I feel that I've been able to just fully take my own time to, to work at my own tempo and not stress and not um, try to produce. Um, so, yeah, it's just been, it's been beautiful. What's your relationship with time? I, I know you in two different ways. Yeah. I know you're never late. And if you say you're yeah. calling at five, the phone rings at five. Yeah. But then I also see you as someone who 
is timeless and and maybe you relate Mm -hmm. to things from the past and maybe you're not typical of someone born in 1993 what what would be called an old soul yeah so what is your relationship with time i think time is one of the most valuable things we have i think that um me personally uh wasting time is the hardest thing feeling that i'm not um continuing to grow or i'm just sitting around has always been a really hard point for me even taking like holidays i've always like when I'm working, I want to take a holiday. And then when I go on the holiday, I just find myself wanting to go back. Uh, I think our time's limited here. And I've just seen so many things come and go very, very fast that I feel like it's very important for us to to make the most of our time. And I think being organized and being on schedule and taking um, not everything super serious, but making sure that we're, we're adequate with our time is an important thing, especially for me. And I know we talked about, I think, last time we've ever even spoke was just about like scheduling I told you I love to have like my studio practice being almost like a nine to five showing up working um, and and really trying to dive into my work on a scheduled basis I love that about you I think Mm -hmm. that's what connected us because people look for inspiration and they don't realize that if you're not there the inspiration's not gonna come it's about showing up Mm -hmm. if you set a schedule the in my opinion, in your opinion, that's why we connect. If you set a schedule, the inspiration will find you. Yeah, yeah. But if you're not there, it won't. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you were so self-disciplined. Now, with that said, you've never had a job working for anyone but yourself, have you? Yeah, I mean, other than like the random uh, like bartending gigs and uh, summer jobs during college, uh, yeah, I haven't really, I don't believe have had to do kind of a corporate position. There was a there was a time right out of, right out of university where I was I was applying and we almost locked it in but there was something about it that didn't seem right and I actually had a friend call me up and say hey I really think you should start painting and that's actually how it started was he's like hey I really think you should dive into this painting thing I think it'll be good for you and that's where it all started and it was perfectly lined up with me kind of stepping away from the idea of a corporate position so. And yet, one of the things I noticed about your career as an artist is that you sort of are unencumbered by any kind of program a gallery would impose upon you Mm -hmm. because, I mean, of course, I think it's because of your spiritual practice being open to things that come your way, but not everyone's going to hear what I say and not think that's flaky. I think that you put yourself out there and things come to you and you're available and you're happy taking risks because... That studio space that Dank gave you mm-hmm. is enormous. Yeah, it is. And that in itself isn't something that happens to people yeah. that frequently, but these things happen mm-hmm. to you. And then you had an exhibition in the space. Yeah. And that exhibition was in between lockdowns, and it was packed, and I believe yeah. sold out. Yes, yes, yes. Now you're in a situation where everyone wants you and they're falling Mm. over themselves to to lock you down (laughs) and that's a lot of pressure too i don't want to back you into a corner with any kind of questions but you're you're at a, a crossroads in in a sense yeah and i'm thinking about something someone said last week where they said whenever they reach a fork in the road mm-hmm. they take both both paths interesting i could see you doing the yeah, same I thing i think i think there's some artists out there that i've looked up to that have kind of chose both paths and been able to walk almost down down the middle of the line and i'm open to a lot of different scenarios right now i I know that I've always made 
um, decisions that I've been patient about. I've, I don't rush decision making. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm at a point, you know, I think crossroads a good word, just trying to figure out what the next step is and making sure that I don't make a fast decision because I think that's when you make a bad decision. And, um, yeah, I think I've been very blessed and very, yeah, I'm just very grateful for all, all the opportunities that have come up so far. Yeah. If you were to model your career after another artist, mm. crazy, crazy <laughs> thing to say, oh. who would it be? Who, who do you see? Man, that's a tough one. I, I don't know if I have like a, a single artist that I, I have in mind. I think there's a lot of personalities of artists that I love. And I think there's a lot of works of art that I uh, connect to. Um, but it's always been flip-flop where it's like I love the artist but not necessarily feel super connected to the work or I love the work and I don't feel necessarily connected to the artist. So I don't really have one off the top of my head and I don't want to just say somebody that I you know, think is a good alignment. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more. I'll shoot you a text about it. <laughs> In the last show, you uh, featured sculpture and I yeah. think that was the first time your sculpture was yeah, yeah. part of it. How did that go? I, personally, yeah. I loved it because you can see around you right now that yeah. the market for sculpture is growing. Either dealers are understanding how to sell it mm -hmm. or artists are, are, are seeing material as a way of opening up their practice rather yeah. than having to stick to one way of working. Yeah. How did the sculpture work for it you? It went really well. It was an interesting process. I had been working on that for about a year and a half to two-ish year and a half two years just trying to figure out the best way to take some of the the works on paper and some of the physical oil paintings and bring them into like kind of a 3d element and sculpture i had been messing around with it i wasn't completely set on certain materials but then we came to this kind of like awesome way of sculpting this piece for the show and we did we did 50 of them it was the first time i've done any kind of series work which i'm not necessarily the most I know. I don't love the idea of like multiple series and prints. I don't. I've never done prints, um, but I wanted to provide something for my audience that's always asking for works, and I wanted to be a little bit more affordable. And it, I mean, the response was great. I, we we were able to build like a really cool installation around a painting with the sculptures and the sculptures interacting with the painting. And yeah, I think visually it was a really really interesting concept. And we even built in like an augmented reality platform into it so people could place the sculptures in their home if they didn't want to buy it. It was, it was pretty cool. Sold out show? It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yes. It was pretty cool. If you've been collecting any art over yeah. over all of this, yeah. why don't we go on to other artists? What have you been collecting? Yeah, there's a, I've been... I've really been starting to find the importance of collecting other people's art just because there's a lot of emerging talent that I see on a day-to-day -day basis just being involved in the art community. And I think it's important also just to um, participate in what other artists are doing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, our, the house I live in now, is, it's kind of just like a cluster of so many different Good. emerging artists. And, nice. and we've, you know, we've curated it to look pretty special in there. And I think a lot of friends and family that come over, they're always like, wow, it's so interesting. They really walk through every part of the house. But, yeah, I, I, there's a couple couple artists that I really have have loved collecting over this past year. Well, one of them, especially his name's Kendrick McFarlane. Um, he's a really good friend of mine, but he he's just he's so so good at oil painting and really good with figurative works and uh, a buddy of mine Soul Summers, he uh, he's a great painter as well and then um, 
one of my best friends actually gifted me for my uh, for my birthday a Connor Tingley piece, and he's someone that I've actually really really looked up to as far as just um, how he presents himself for a long time. We're out of time. Yeah. Um, do you oh. want to come to my house and curate something there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. In Shepherd Market near <laughs> yeah. the gallery. Can yeah. we do something? Can we get Josh McDonald involved in it too? Yeah, we could probably call do him. Do you know about. Lefty? Yeah. I know Lefty, yeah. he's uh, His studio is pretty close to mine. He's a... Uh, He's like my wild alter ego. I love that kid so much. <laughs> so you can find my house in Shepherd Market because Lefty graced me with. Oh, really? He did it with outside. With Lefty, that's so cool. A beautiful, beautiful person. I knew you would know Lefty him. Lefty actually came and installed for my show. He did all the vinyl work for the outside and the inside. So he he definitely he came in clutch for me. Oh. to Harry Cartwright and he's here with me today and we've been talking on Instagram about him coming in but I'm always reluctant to talk too much to an artist before they come in because they'll generally say things that are more interesting to me off air than here so we're going to get to know Harry together right now Harry thank you so much for making the time to come and see me today how are you oh mate thank you so much for having me it's so nice to uh to be in a real place in a radio station, no less. What's the last year been like? Your grad show was particularly sensitive in my mind because it was a show that should have happened last year when none of the grad shows happened. So take it away. You probably have a lot to talk about. Right, exactly. Well, I felt, um, yeah, really blessed to be in a, uh, a school like City and Guilds of London Art School, being kind of quite small Um they were able, I felt, just to handle the entire situation just amazingly. Um, so, yeah, like you say, our uh, our show was supposed to be on September last year. Um, and that was when we would graduate. And that was when we were all, you know, preparing for. But obviously, COVID happened. Um, so in March last year, the school kind of closed. We were sent home. That's when I actually moved back out of London Um back to my parents, um, which is like near Reading. Uh, and I kind of moved everything over there. And for me, lockdown was just so productive. Um, I truly just really enjoyed what it brought. I was able to build a screen printing studio in my garage, in my parents' house, which was just, yeah, in terms of facilities, which I'd learnt at City and Guilds, I was able to then move those across um, and have a really productive year. Um, so we went back to school in September when we were supposed to graduate. Um, we were there until December time. And that, that time is when I made that painting hot and fresh. And it was this real kind of, we were all back in it together. Um, just so excited to be back in a studio place. Obviously there were restrictions in place, but the school were able to just manage that. And um, it was a great time. I had that kind of last hurrah uh, in London and um and made some some good work i think and then we went back in january once the sec that new lockdown came in and then this year it's kind of been here there and everywhere um but yeah i'm back back here now and uh yeah now, it was a group of students who autonomously decided to take over the barge and stage the grad show is that right was it well traditionally it is it was at the school um in kennington city and girls of london and um, which is always great. I've loved all the shows in the past, but because it was the MA and the BA showcase, there was like 40 artists. So in order to have such a, a big space, um, yeah, the, the head of fine art, Robin Mason, I think just 
had that choice to to hire out this incredible venue, the Barge House, and put on this fantastic show, which I think just went above and beyond anything we were expecting. And you're very active on Instagram, which is great because people watch and keep up with your career and your progress. And they're part of the enthusiasm and the excitement of what used to be kind of like cafe society. You've recreated that cafe society of artists chattering about what they're doing on your Instagram post. And it it's... Um, it's inviting and welcoming for people to participate in it. Now, I bring that up because I know your painting sold relatively quickly. It, it did, yeah, amazingly, yeah. At well, the did show. it sell on the opening day? No, on the um, on the Friday. So show opened on the Tuesday, and then uh, on the Friday got a nice got a nice message that I'd uh, I'd sold it, which was yeah, just fantastic. So I you mean, didn't meet the collector and know the collector. It sold to someone you'd never met before. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'm going to take this away because I don't want to put you on the spot with that. One of the things I noticed, and one of the things I'm um, taken with is I used to live on Albemarle Street and I would see Paul Smith every day. I was at number 14 and I think they're number eight. And I also used to do art tours in the area mm -hmm. when things were open and they were working at a Brown's hotel. The one thing about Paul Smith, separate from 50 years of men's fashion and tailoring and setting British culture aside from other, anyway, long story short, is he has a great eye for spotting emerging talent one of the people he spotted early on was connor harrington another one is you so how did paul smith come across your work sir paul smith sir paul smith wow yeah what a guy um yeah just a fantastic like you say champion for um creativity and especially young uh creativity he's got his foundation now which he set up uh, last year um that's what he did during lockdown right yeah yeah no he's uh he's still been busy very busy but he that was actually about three years ago you know when i was um just just uh hustling hustling as i seem to always be but back then it seemed to just be way more heightened when i like first moved to london back in 2015 i was just you know trying to meet everyone do everything um and i just sent him a letter long story short sent sent sir paul smith a letter with one of my prints included um and from there it kind of just snowballed and i got a few emails back from from various people and a, and, a, and another letter from him actually like replied back which was just amazing um but you know just uh kind of that connection just kind of up and down keeping it nourished keeping it flourished and then at the beginning of this year I'd, I'd sold paintings to them and um, some paintings were up in the Albemarle Street store, like you say. Um, but at the beginning of this year, I got a phone call um, from from the, the person I deal with at Paul Smith and they just said, look, we're opening this new store um, in Borough Market, Borough Yards. Um, we want you to to be the kind of artist for the for the show, for the for the store. So yeah that opened in um may it actually closes next week on the 12th um but that's just and it and it's only down the river from the show at the barge house so i had an amazing kind of experience of taking my family and friends like walking from one show to the other it was all just very surreal especially now things are finally open and people are around um so yeah no i uh it's been a it's been an amazing thing um it will continue to remain online i think and also the some of the paintings will go back to Albemarle Street, so you'll still be able to see some of my work there. So, yeah, it's amazing. So let's talk about you 
I mean, that's everything from last weekend. What about you and, and the moment you decided in in Reading that you were going to be an artist and why? Yeah, that is a good question. I mean, through school, I was never really um, about art or anything. I was kind of, I say like lost. I mean, I, I think a lot of people when you go through school, especially in this day and age, no one really knows what to do. We're kind of funneled into maybe some job or doing something we don't particularly want to do. Um, yeah, there's no room for self-discovery. I th- seldom at school yeah I love you know I was always quote-unquote creative and I was always taking photos and making videos and all that stuff but I was never you know painting or making drawings or that was just kind of pushed aside then I went to sixth form college did did like kind of photography type stuff and then um at the end of that even more lost um my media studies teacher Jane Thomas uh big up her she just said why don't you do a foundation in art and design, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. And I just said, sure thing. The year, a year course where you kind of try everything out, see what sticks, um, but fundamentally meet people and um, just see that world. That was such a new world to me at the time. And uh, being able to yeah, do like kind of, I focused on graphic design, um, but then. But which that- is really interesting. Uh, Tom Hingston was in last week and he I met him at Paul Smith's as well. Mm. And he focused on graphic design. Mm. I think with graphic design, people understand how to. It gives people an understanding of how to get things done quick and make decisions quickly. Maybe. That's a Maybe. Good, that is a good insight, I think. And um, yeah, having deadlines, I guess, is more common within that world. And uh, it kind of touches on a lot of stuff as well. How did your practice evolve from there? Well, then after that year, I was able to, within the same school, study advertising at like a degree level. So I studied three years on advertising and that was kind of like my life. You know, I was coming into all the agencies all the time, meeting creative directors with my portfolio, uh, making ads and, you know, uh, shooting videos or shooting photography. Um, But I was always, that was when I started painting because at uni, I just had more time. Um... Yeah. And I just like started buying canvases and started buying paints and was literally just painting in in my room um, at uni, always kind of just with no real idea what I was doing. I was just I just wanted to to kind of make that stuff. Um, But I think you just hit the really important part of the pandemic and of universities that it gives you time and time is what you need to sort of evolve as an artist. Totally. And especially with the pandemic. I mean, I've had a lot of thoughts and ideas that I would just never have had had it not been for the pandemic I mean the screen printing studio now I'm like making t-shirts I'm it's all just kind of very quickly and I fundamentally felt like um is the I think all you know this kind of death of the city a lot of us maybe realize it doesn't have to be so London centric like why are we all kind of in this wild rat race I was able to move out and I still had this show on at Paul Smith and I was still able to liaise like the barge house show so that was quite important to me and and especially looking forward I don't know where I'm going to end up but I think it's important isn't it a lot of people are happier outside of the city and not commuting every day Mm. it was a powerful learning curve Mm -hmm. Um, and of course you know I adore London it's my favorite city and the galleries are fantastic but it just made me realize like for me as an artist is this absolutely the best route? And it's just kind of keeping your eyes open instead of maybe being blinkered by what you think you should be doing. Or You may have just answered this, but if I were to say what cultural experience changed how you see the world or your practice and why, you may have answered it by saying the pandemic, but maybe it was something else. 
yeah, I actually did have something up my sleeve for that one. Um, but just purely because it was just so incredible. And at the time, this was in 2018. So, um, well, like four years ago now, when I was seemingly much younger than I am now. Um, I uh, I went to LA for the... I was with the other art fair um, in LA. So that, that alone was massive. Ryan. Right, Ryan. Ryan's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was like huge on its own kind of thing because it was my first international art fair and I was just this, yeah, young kind of guy with these paintings, got them all shipped over. It was just this huge learning curve and I, I loved it all. But um, I was there for a month and, yeah, long story short, I managed to uh, to get in touch with David Hockney and I actually went and met David Hockney at his studio in the Hollywood Hills and uh, it was literally the best day of my life and aside from just how amazing that day was like as a young artist as a young man just everything was possible seemingly after that you know I was just like my dream has come true you know like I've I've somehow finessed this and made that happen and I since then that I just I, I was doing it, you know. I was, How did that it, start? How did you get in touch with him? How did you get his number? Yeah, well, uh, it wasn't his number, actually. It was his assistant, um, JP. I did get his email address, Jean-Pierre. Um, but I used to work in um, for Taschen, like yeah. the German book yeah. publisher. And, Benedict. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, um, they, they publish his huge sumo book. Yeah, and I used gorgeous. to like, sell some of those. And yeah, just managed to roundabout So way. what was it like? Oh, what was he like? Gracious, lovely, everything just I'm incredible. thinking. Incredible, yeah, yeah. He's just an amazing man, and uh, you know they they say like don't meet your heroes, I guess, or whatever. But it was just perfect from start to finish, and uh, yeah, just meeting him, being in the studio, see, sitting in the chairs that I've seen like painted, being just in this environment, it was just like life changing for me, you know. And That's two people you've met just by asking them if you could meet them yeah that's wonderful i I haven't actually met paul smith yet no i've never met i will i think i I hope i will later this year once things uh but no we've all just it's all just been through the ether and through the but yeah i have met uh david hockney which was just yeah incredible and um fundamentally changed my life i think that that was a moment when Things were good, you know, everything, art was going well, I was in this fair, but that was just a moment where I realised art was bigger than just making a painting, art was now just my entire life. And um, It's quite empowering to know that he's still open to meeting new people and interested and curious. I know. The iPad paintings, he doesn't need to make them every day and he's curious and lively. Truly. It's wonderful, it's really heartwarming for me to hear that. I know, he set aside this time and... Well, my surname's Cartwright, um, which is a very northern name, and obviously he's from Yorkshire. Um, so as soon as we met, he's like, oh, you're a Cartwright. Like, I know a few Cartwrights. And then from then, it was just like we were friends, <laughs> just like a long lost friend. And no, it was, you know, I was showing him my work. He was showing me his work. It was just like crazy. It was just surreal. So um, so I guess this comes point. to the next question, if you could own any artwork. <laughs> Are you taking a hockey? Yeah, yeah, yeah it uh, would be a hockey. I don't blame you. For sure. That's a, that's a moment. Yeah. Oh, it was just uh, incredible. And um, yeah, I'll never forget that. I will never forget Well, that. I know everyone's excited about your work that I've talked to. So um, we've come to the end of our interview time, if you can believe it. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening.
Joshua Donkar. Welcome to Soho Radio. Thank you for making time for me today in your busy schedule. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Was um, the next big thing one of the first projects you did, or was your work with Sky Portrait Art uh, a Sky Portrait Artist before that? Or yeah, how did this all start for you? Re really, it started with um, my third year. Um, so graduating and then soon from where from where from Cardiff Metropolitan University so Cardiff School of Art and Design um, and from there quite soon after I ended up uh, getting the opportunity to go on Sky Portrait Artist of the Year um, and then not too long after that the next big thing came up which was again another amazing opportunity and unbelievable exposure and connections and yeah who were the judges on the Sky Portrait was it Kate Bryant yeah amazing Kate Bryan, yeah. she's delightful yeah really, really good energy yeah. and such a good speaker yeah um, and they had Ty as well and uh, Kathleen um, yeah, but they they all they all really made sure to look after you, which was very kind. Yeah, so and was, they've all been in the business forever. I mean, Kate, yeah, Kate's worked in Japan and they were sorry in China. Mm. She opened galleries in Shanghai. She's a fine art society. So she's a, a, a dedicated her entire life to working with artists. What did you learn from the experience? Um, working under pressure. <laughs> really, what was the it's, mandate? Um, well, it's uh, it's six hours in theory, um, to paint uh, your subject, which is a short amount of time for any painter. Okay, um, backtrack. I don't have Sky. Okay. <laughs> Start from the beginning. What, what, what was going on here? So uh, the, I guess the concept of the show is they bring together a big group of artists, um, a mixture of amateurs or young emerging artists and experienced artists, and you're given a celebrity sitter to paint, and you're given six-hour deadline to give your create your best rendition of of whichever subject. Who were yeah. you given? Uh, Paul Mescal from uh, Normal People. Okay. Um, oh, wow. wow. Yeah, so he was, uh, he was quite popular. All the girls are <laughs> having a heartthrob moment. <laughs> oh, carry on. It's... Um, yeah, it was it was just uh, it was just quite an incredible experience. Um, so you were introduced to him? Yeah, briefly. Um, it was it's very much a, a television show, so it's sort of we almost sort of work around things a little bit. Um, but yeah, we're set up, we're set up with an easel, we're set up with our materials, um, and then we basically go to work really. Um, and yeah, you you have little chats in between with with the sitter, uh, and quite a few interviews in between. Meanwhile, the whole thing is being filmed. Um, and it's, yeah, a bit of a baptism of fire if you're doing that for the first time. Um, but yeah, just a really, really amazing experience. And they, they, yeah, they really do look after you. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a real blessing to do that. And, and did they pick a winner from the show? Yes, they did. And that um, was you, obviously. No way. No, <laughs> no, I, um, I think I rather crashed and burned to that one, unfortunately. Um, but no, it was, it was, it's a great show actually. Um, but Who has the painting at the moment? Uh, oh, I think I've, I've still got the painting of Paul Mescal. I think they're actually doing, um, so, so in terms of the, the entry, uh, they select, uh, a self-portrait. Um, so I entered a self-portrait that I've been working on for another project. Um, and then that was selected and hopefully that's then going to be exhibited in a, oh, I'm not sure if I should even be talking about don't this. Don't say it. Um, <laughs> don't say it. We'll have to, okay, just tell us. Um, but yeah, that's hopefully a, a big exhibition coming up soon. Um, Joshua, you're very good natured because these were none of the questions I gave you in advance. <laughs> you do know that, don't you? I've just broadsided you with all of these behind the scenes questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you off the hook for a minute before you regret coming and say something you wish you hadn't. And I'll say, why don't you, you said you went to school in Cardiff. Um, 
Did you grow up in a family of artists or when did you decide it was a good idea to become an artist? Um, I just sort of fell into it really. Uh, it's, it's one of those things I've, I've always been drawing. I was an only child as well, which I think, so drawing is really my entertainment, I think, growing up. Um, so I, I've just always been doing it and it was the, it was the thing I loved to do. It was the thing that I'd, I guess I, in, to an extent I had the most success with doing. Um, and I was just I was just in love with it. There's nothing else I wanted to do really. Um, no, definitely not really from a family of artists. Um, but that in itself was really nice because I think I sort of, I guess, uh, made them a little bit more interested in the arts. And I mean, my mum absolutely loves coming around museums with me nowadays. And even my dad's sort of quite into it now. Um, so Where was, did you grow up? I grew up in Bath actually. Okay. Um, so you've got one or two pretty nice galleries around there. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and we have lots of family in London, so we were often in London, so, you know, the Tate Modern. Um, Why did you choose to go to school in Cardiff? Ooh, uh, I just, I really enjoyed the university when I, when I went around and had the open days. Um, it was a really beautiful space, and most importantly, the course was incredibly open because um, my practice always kind of hovered around fine art and illustration. Um and they sort of, yeah, it was, it was a course that really uh, would adapt to the students and really allow you to follow your own creative paths without sort of pigeonholing you in certain areas. And, and that was incredibly important to me because I think I've always been quite stubborn um, and I know I would have struggled on most courses. But So it was something like a self-directed course. You maybe yeah, to, had autonomy within the learning program. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, and you're, nice. you're very much supported and encouraged. Um and yeah, it was it was had a, had a wonderful experience there. Is is that how your practice evolved? Do you think through through that sort of open concept? Yes, certainly, and I think studio. exposure to to academia and to research um, and literature. And I, I was even fortunate enough to spend a year studying in the Venetian Academy of Painting um, via Erasmus, and that was a huge learning curve. Um, and at the same time, I think it was 2018, 2019, uh, the Venetian Biennale was on as well. So artists like uh, Connelly Crosby, um, just Lynette Boyaka, some, some of the most amazing contemporary black painters. You um, met them? No, no, no. But I, I saw their works yeah, in person. Lynette just had that great show at yeah. Tate Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Which I went to about a yeah. million times. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And, and Toya Nodotola as well, recently. Um, oh. Account of Early Fit Theory is one of the best exhibitions I've seen. I haven't um, seen that one. Yeah, it's, they, they did an online showcase as well, because obviously COVID um, came th- right through the middle of it. Um, but I- and, and you were incredible. down there at the time. You were in. Yeah, I was. I was studying there. Yeah, so um, being able to go around that and, and see those in the flesh was just um, utterly inspiring. Yeah, it was. It was. A, that was. That was certainly a massive learning curve. And of course, the classical techniques and the chance to just be painting in an academy for a whole year was uh, was really a dream come true. I was just going to ask you what cultural experience changed the way you see the world and why, <laughs> yeah. but I think we just hit on that. Yeah, certainly to an extent. Um, I would say, you know, growing up, um, obviously I've, I've grown up mixed, um, both Ghanaian and British, and that's a huge influence on my life, um, especially almost being biracial and almost stuck in between those those two worlds and those two cultures. Um, so certainly both of those have fed in massively to, to my view of the world and certainly to my practice as well. It's funny. Um, I'm looking at Alice wondering if I should ask the question or not about Tate Britain. There was a, a situation with some younger students at 
Cape Britain recently where I was showing them Dr. Chila Berman's Tuk Tuk Vans and, and Light and they said, you know, what's the difference between Tate Britain and Tate Modern? And I said, well, uh, Tate Britain's for British artists. And the response, but, but she's Indian, she's Punjabi. And I thought, oh, we always have to go back to square one. You're not surprised. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's an inevitable thing, I think. Um, often if, if you look different, that's the first question that comes up. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, I mean, it's sort of inevitable and often I think it's almost Look different from what? Because Dif- this is this is yeah. what we're asking. We've been asking, it's- and and you you were born here, and you you work with cultural issues and race identity, and and yeah, your absolutely. passport. You're British. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, it's really. I've been doing a project kind of based on this, and it's it's so fascinating. But um, what's the project? It's uh, it's a new series of work called uh, Ancestral Foundations, um, and really, it's exploring the experiences of those who've grown up as members of the African diaspora, um, but have grown up in the Western world with, you know, that history of colonialism and prejudice and, and basically exploring questioning how, how we navigate the world and how we form our senses of identity. Um, and it's just been so fascinating to be able to do this project and have these conversations with people my own age, much older than me, even some younger than me. Um, and the differences of experiences, but often it is very much a, an outside experience, especially in, in Britain, in terms of um, in terms of that sense of belonging, um, and often you almost lean into that other side, that African heritage, to an extent. Um, and often, I, I feel when people haven't had that direct connection, they, they lean into it and almost project into it as as that being their sense of home. But sadly, quite often, when you go back again, you are still an outsider there as well. So it's this idea of, I guess, liminality um, and existing between spaces. And that just fascinates me in, in my work. Come back and talk to me again. I've really enjoyed I'd, I'd this. I'd love to. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm going to welcome you to A Private View. Thank you so much for coming in today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. You've got a big day tomorrow. We're doing The Private View at Sapling with Charlotte Cole. Yes, so um, the opening is on Wednesday, the 8th, um, next week. Um, So that'll be a really exciting party and nice time to, uh, I guess, celebrate being back in London after a year and a half away. Where did you spend... Yes, so um, I decided to move back home to North Norfolk. Um, and it's coming that's... up a lot today, Norfolk. I'll tell you more about that later. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, it's a great county. It's um, a very flat county, um, which is one of its characteristics. So it means that light sort of transcends in this majestic, magical way. And uh, that was that's a huge element in my work, light. So I started to sort of research into artist, uh, particularly Turner, and the way that he executes light in, in his work. Did you buy the... I'm uh, just mentioning Turner. I, and it was the other person from Norfolk, Andy Gotts, a photographer, who said if, if there was any painting, painter that he could be, it would be Turner because of the use of light. And then I think of the Rothkos that were donated to the Tate, the Seagram murals. Absolutely, yes. Well, there, there are lots of sort of correlations between sort of old masters and abstract expressionism. So, yes, Turner, Turner's been a huge influence in my work. And I started to look at other 
artists um, in response to the Romantic movement like Eugene Delacroix, who's extremely playful with his colour palette, but then also more widely other uh, Romantics like the writer William Wordsworth. So I came across a poem that he wrote in response to a walk he did in the Norfolk County called Sweet Was the Walk. And Wordsworth, he'd, he'd just come back from the French Revolution. He left his partner and child behind and he'd come back to the UK and had this moment of complete despair. And so one of the ways that he dealt with the situations, he leaned into nature to pour peace on the trauma that he went through. And I felt similarly like this moment of the pandemic, there was so much uncertainty and there are lots of themes that connected myself to the romantics, to the then the, this moment in, in time. So a lot of my work is, is made in response to walking in the landscape of Norfolk, picking up on imagery from nature. So on my iPhone, I've actually got all these different folders which have um, titles like Echium Plant, Clouds, Waves, Marshland. Um, and it's just, it's just a sort of a pocket of, of resource for me. Now, I, I mean, I spent the morning looking at your work. We had an opening last night and I spent the morning looking at your work and I'm like, I noticed that Flora Yusagovich follows you as well. And I'm like, okay, there's these painters who are actually going further back in history and looking for the romantic side of painting again. Absolutely. I think, you know, looking at these conventions of painting, understanding the history behind it, I mean, Interestingly, with the work at Sapling, I wanted to really investigate the idea of the landscape. And as much as it's a genre that's well known in art history, um, I feel it's a, it's an idea that's important to mark today, particularly with the pandemic and people's response, people desiring green space, people desiring nature. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's sort of dealing with the uncertainty. It's a way of actually understanding what we're doing, where we're going and how, how we're living. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you How did you decide to... Yeah, let's go back to the very beginning. You were born in Norfolk, I guess. I was. I was, I was born in Norwich Hospital. Absolutely <laughs> great. Are your parents artists? My mother is a painter. Um, Lucky you. Yeah. It's, no, it's, she's been a huge mentor for me for the last year and a half. I, I mean, my tutor, really. I decided to um, interrupt my studies at the Slade. So this is partly why it's extremely exciting to be back this September because I'll be going back to the Slade for my final year. Um, but yeah, I sort of pulled the plug on London and had my my mum my as sort of my tutor guiding me and pushing me and yeah, teaching me how to paint again, how to hold a paintbrush, how to mix my paints, um, which is in a way um, extremely valuable. And if you, again, look back at art history, if you think about these relationships that are created during times of crisis, if you look at um, Van Gogh and Gauguin, the way that they formed this bond, similarly with my, my mother, it, that this is yeah, an extremely special um, time to, to remember and, and have together. Where did your mother study? Uh, she went to Edinburgh College of Art. I just came back from Edinburgh. The first half of the show was Edinburgh. And I honestly, the light there is different as well. It's so different. I, I also came back from Edinburgh just uh, last weekend. 
Were you there for the fringe, I presume? No, I went for my birthday on a sleeper <laughs> car with my dog. And I and I met friends who were oh. there for the fringe. It's a very, it's an important place uh, for me. The I, art uh, in the galleries. Tell me why it's important for you. Yeah. Well, I, um, so I studied um, at the Leith School of Art, um, which is a tiny art school. But I guess that's where I sort of, yeah, learned how to paint. Um, under the teacher of David Martin, and then from there I went on to St Martin's, um, which which was extremely impactful. I was surrounded by painters, sculptors, carpenters, graphic designers, fashion designers. So you're just surrounded in this hub of creativity that I'm sure you know it enables you to sort of breathe and breed art. But it's in King's Cross. It's very different than being in Scotland. Absolutely. And I think that that change, that adjustment of environment is something that is, is in, in me. I, I definitely enjoy uh, changing my surroundings. And I think that sort of ca- is a catalyst for, for my work. Uh, so is that how your practice evolved just through this series of putting yourself into different environments? Would you say Absol- I mean, you're very accomplished at a, at a young, not young, but you, you're still studying and people are noticing your work you've been nominated for awards you've been distinguished that's a lot of pressure and a lot of encouragement and it's it's a tricky position for an artist coming out of absolutely school to get that much attention so absolutely I think I think my response to that is that the work always comes first and so my ideas my research my actual the material handling of the work that that's the most important thing and actually everything else is just on the periphery um and I I think that's a really important thing to to remind myself and 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 enjoying it as well you know as soon as I I sort of pick up an uh, an artist that I haven't heard of before so for instance Tu Hong Tao is this incredible Chinese artist he recently had a show at Levy Gorvey um gallery his and I recently just got his book called The Journey of Time and just indulging myself in his paintings on these pages was it, that that that's what makes me tick um so I think I think that for me is that the work has to come first so then what about your time in life and and who you are now and do you feel any responsibility to speak on behalf of your generation let's say I'm not saying you have to because this art history conversation is also uh, things are marketed to us in terms of values and priorities and principles. And sometimes those pressures of having to be the voice of your generation aren't real for everyone. Do you feel that's part of... Uh, yes, I These think... These were none of the questions I gave you in advance. <laughs> Did you notice that? No, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, I, I think there is. I think, you know, as an artist, you are putting a mark down literally on the surface of that paper, that canvas or you know, you're creating an object in some way. So suddenly you're, you are marking a, a feeling or a moment in time. I think um, more personally, I, I, I've really enjoyed being being back in an institution somewhere like the Slade because you are surrounded by like-minded individuals who are wanting to challenge each other, who are wanting to encourage each other. And so I guess that's what I'd sort of, how, how I would want to lead. I want to encourage um, young artists, young students, uh, and my, my generation to stride forward and and be who they who they want to be, but doing it, I guess, in a kind and generous way. Um, I think too often that that 
particularly you know, the art world ha- has got sort of a history of of um you know bad behavior when actually that there's there's a lot of good and um it's really exciting to be part of this generation of of really great artists it's funny this is another thing it's like you were meant to come in today we were just speaking about this thing uh when I was growing up, there was a bit of a fashion with like absolutely fabulous and Gordon Ramsay and not growing up. I mean, I'm talking in my 30s, but let's just play along for fun. When I was growing up, there was this trend of people being bitchy, being cool. Mm-hmm. And it and Alice, the producer, and I were talking about it today. It's just not kind. It's not as acceptable. So a lot of people who've held positions, let's say, at institutions for a long time are being replaced and and I wonder sometimes is it, if it's because they're caught in those ways where they're not being kind, that it is about being bitchy, that even the humor they use comes with a dig instead of a gentle humor because there's no, we're, we're radically soft with each other at the moment for a reason because there's a lot of pain. Absolutely. And I think particularly after the pandemic and now that we're all coming out of our shells, I think people have really realized you know what it means to be living and actually um this last year what's been amazing as much as i've been under a rock in north norfolk i've had mates from the slade be in italy be in glasgow and yet we've all connected and all encouraged and talked to one another and connected with, with each other in a way that i just don't think we would have done if we'd been in the studios and so i think that then forges a friendship and ultimately you know that in a way is what we we should all be be about you know actually lending a hand as much as sort of being critical and, and guiding it's actually um yeah encouraging each other i'm at sachi yates on cork street with benjamin spears and we are here at Desire Lines, uh, a show that's been the talk of, well, everywhere in Mayfair, uh, everywhere online, I think because of the instantly familiar yet new look of everything. Uh, You see film influences, you see surreal influences, you see art history references, and there isn't a painting in here that I couldn't live with. And from what everyone is saying, this show will be sold out by the end of the day. I'm quite convinced of that. Plus, it's already, yeah. So I'm not, I'm going to cut this short and hand uh, my mic over to Benjamin Spears. Hello. Hello. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet yeah. you too. My, uh, so uh, perhaps we should uh, talk about the title of the exhibition first. Yes, if that's useful. So, I like that. The show is called Desire Lines, um, and Desire Lines are, are pathways that are improvised. Um, basically, you know, if a council has created a tarmac path across a park, but people normally walk a different line, uh, the bits of worn down track that are sort of mud with all grass gone where people have actually walked, they're known as Desire Lines because it's, you know, it's a, it's a pathway that's born out of necessity and desire rather than authority uh, and I think that's really interesting I suppose it's sort of an, an analogous to my journey as an artist where I sort of, you know, at art college I kind of refused to conform to the general trends that were happening in the 1990s with very dry kind of conceptual process based painting and I always wanted a bit more sort of lurid rich 
you know, figuration with complexity and kind of sexy weirdness. Um, and so I felt very much outside. Where did you go to work? I was school? at Goldsmiths, um, <laughs> which is a very particular. Get much drier. No, although the 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 interesting thing about that was that I was. Um, I was taught by Peter Doig, who was a big influence, um, and he was a big supporter as well whilst I was there. Which, he was only there briefly. He wasn't a permanent tutor. I think he was there for about two or three terms, but I was feeling fairly misunderstood and a bit despondent about, um, you know, feeling like sort of a bit of a failure, really. Like, the, you know, I'd put a lot of work into things and it didn't feel like it would get any acknowledgement. And then Peter came along and was sort of encouraging me to push things further and introduced me to all kinds of artists that I wasn't aware of. People like, for instance, and obviously people can't see this, but there's, there are Peter Saul paintings in this room at the moment. And Peter introduced me to his work and Alexis Rockman, a lot of the Chicago Imagist work, you know, and I was really, you know, it was amazing. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, along with... Um, uh, that, that was one of the biggest sort of helps in terms of developing my own language. But the other thing which I think is, is referenced in the catalogue essay is I, uh, when I left art college, I worked in a restaurant for a while and in between shifts, I'd go to the National Gallery and spend two hours, pretty much four or five days a week at the National Gallery, kind of reverse engineering Rubens or Rembrandt and doing lots of drawing and just thinking about how, just thinking about the mechanics of how paintings were made, but also not more than just the technical things, thinking about how um, uh, meaning is, you know, meaning might be curated, uh, created. So, for instance, you know, gesture, facial expressions, um, how things can be, what's the phrase they use in film, kind of shown rather than described or something, you know. So I'm really, I really enjoy levels of illusion in work um yeah and those levels of illusion if i'm thinking about it at all when i read anything about you i hear about david lynch and tarantino and that kind of non-linear narrative that they're so brilliant at and this happens when people see your work this show was hung yesterday but i've been here three times already and people don't know if they're looking at a dream or cartoon or surrealism or a painting or a film or a drug <laughs> experience all of it comes up and uh, although your work is instantly familiar it's also quite disturbing because there's something not familiar about it so there's a few things in what you said that I want to revisit one is the importance of good instructors and how they influence so many generations of artists. Uh, the other is the moment that you knew that you wanted to spend your life and dedicate your life to making art. So take it as you will. Okay, well, I can deal with the, uh, the second point first of all, because that's pretty easy. Um, I was, uh, as a child, I was just obsessed obsessed with and obsessive about making anything with my hands for instance you know there was a thing called airfix kits which were model airplanes and i was so fastidious at painting and i loved 
painting the interior of the cockpits, for instance, with all the little buttons and the illuminated lights. And I would do them with enormous detail, even though once you'd put the canopy over the top, you couldn't even see inside it. But I loved that sense, even as a small child, of kind of buried detail and the intensity of, of things that weren't necessarily immediately available for visual consumption, but were kind of there at a different level. I know that sounds a bit aggrandizing for a six or seven-year-old, but I, ha- I really had a sense of that. And then uh, I went to a, a secondary private school, but I got a scholarship for my art there and I had this oh just this wonderful art teacher called Robert Julia who is uh, no longer he actually died last year which was really sad but he was a uh, you know a real like a a mentor a father figure just very very encouraging and was actually uh, he said to me that he didn't really care about the academic criteria of the courses for a level or anything else he just he wanted me to pursue whatever I was interested in and he would tailor make his advice and suggestions according to those interests and I just think that was the most astonishing grounding for an artist because it sort of showed you that that really it isn't about conforming to a pre-existing template although you know those are things that you need to kind of bounce around inside your head and you need to become masterful yeah exactly literate thank you that's a really good word but then once you're literate the most important thing is finding a way of playing with that language in a very inventive way so what was the moment when you think you found your way of playing ah well that's really interesting can we can we walk and talk and i'll take you to a particular painting so we're walking through the lower space of the gallery and we're going to look at a painting that i made in the late 1990s and it's a painting called furrow um, what is it called? Furrow. Furrow, like a furrowed brow. Yes, uh, I know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is a painting that um, I had been making a series of works which were quite straightforwardly photorealistic um, prior to this. And I'd, I'd made a, a body of work for a show, uh, which it was, a, it was a stage where I'd begun making a fairly basic living as an artist and I've been able to give up my restaurant job but I think these photorealistic paintings they sold very well at a certain price level but I was finding it increasingly stifling just uh, feeling like all the decisions that I made were determined by a pre-existing image even though I was very creatively engaged with the choice of image I wanted much more I wanted more complexity and so I was started working on this painting which was sort of a in a sense, it's, it's not quite right to describe it as a collage of, of different elements. But it's I, a lot. But it's a lot of it's things brought things. in. And, and I worked on this painting on and off for about six months. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a portrait and head and shoulders. Uh, and there are different elements from, I suppose, you know, some things that come from perhaps Renaissance painting, pre-Raphaelite painting. There's, there's a sort of 1980s backlit fashion photograph thing. I was obsessed at the time with David Lynch, actually. Yeah. Um, and the lighting in, say, Blue Velvet. And I think, I can't remember the exact chronology, but it, it may have been around that time that um, Mulholland Drive was released, I think. And that was a, another kind of seminal visual influence in, from contemporary culture. Um, and I just love that sense in which David Lynch sets up a narrative which feels, it kind of draws you in in quite a conventional, compelling sort of way and then will sort of do a vault fast suddenly and you're left hanging high and dry, you know, and you don't know. life. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought, God, is there a way of making a painting equivalent or at least, you know, making painting generate sort of similar experiences to that? Uh, so. 
A couple of things. I can never unsee this now that I've seen it, which is incredible. But I don't know why, because it isn't because of the physical resemblance, but this looks like a portrait of you. Is it, yeah, that's interesting because there are elements of it that are me, so it's, it is my forehead, my furrowed brow. Um, yeah, I often use uh, elements of my own body, my own hands, uh, my parts of... And, and in those days, it was when I got stuck, because I invent a lot in my paintings, and then if I invented something and it wasn't quite working, I might have to think, well, I'd look in the mirror at my own shoulder and go, well, how does, how does my shoulder move? Or, you know, I change a pose, I change a gesture and use my own body for it. Um, so, yes, it does look like me, <laughs> for a good reason. It's funny when we talk about... Oh, and what do we have over here? This is a... Oh, sorry. Yeah, this is a, a painting called The Abstract Painter, which is a very recent painting, and it's a, it's a tondo. So it's a, a circular painting about a metre and ten centimetres in diameter. And it's a painting which has my, my own hands, for the, I was the model for the hand gestures in it. Um, but it's a, a fragmented... Um, well, I mean, it's ostensibly a female figure, um, but the gen... I don't know how... I mean, I would leave it to other people to sort of ascertain how important the gendered quality is, but she's wearing a, a big, huge sort of fur stole that sort of resembles clouds. I was also thinking there's a, a famous painting um, by Robert Campin in the National Gallery of... It's called The Madonna of the Wicker Screen, I think, and the halo, instead of being a conventional, you know, gold halo, it's, the Madonna is placed in a, in a Northern European house in front of a wicker fire screen, which creates a round form around her head which is the halo in that painting. And I always think there's something, you know, wonderfully earthy and enjoyable about that. And just visually, it really stuck in my head. Your story is very different than so many in art history, but it seems to be a recent story where the younger generation have so much more power than my generation because of social media. And one of your students posted your work on Instagram, and from that, there was an explosion. Is this correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can, I can say, we're going to go upstairs and see the second half of the show. Um, telling the story. Telling the story. So it, In the desire lines. <laughs> well, you know, um, so I was, one evening, I was watching TV with my son. We were currently halfway through watching The Wire. Uh, As you do. My son has reached that age where he really enjoys shows like that. How so it was he? when he's 18 now. Oh, how but uh, I went to get my phone from the kitchen and I, I had at the time just a sort of typically a bog standard Instagram account with three or four hundred followers. Or whatever. And I picked up my phone and it said, you have 500 Instagram notifications. And it was really like something out of a film. I thought, well, this must be a mistake. <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, what? And I, I looked at my notifications and it turned out that Ollie Epp, had posted my work on one of his stories as, and he described it as London's most secretive painter, which was interesting. Which um, of course is going to build a cult of desire. Which is really interesting because I had, you know, I hadn't been secretive actually. I had sort of just, you know, I just hadn't had the right conduit, I suppose. But Ollie, within, literally within a day, I had had a show, offers of shows in LA, London, New York, um, and six months later, uh, 10 years worth of work that I had in my studio had sold um, and I had a you know long list of collectors waiting for work um, did you what, what did you think at the time I mean did you already know this was happening with social media 
so I I didn't really believe that it I hadn't didn't, I didn't know any other artists and I was the, to whom this had happened and and it was so it happened so quickly and it was so astonishing that it felt sort of like a dream I just had to go along with it. Um, I think it might have been. I can't remember whether it was 18 or 19, yeah, maybe 19, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, but basically, from that moment on, I've been in the studio, you know, six, seven days a week, um, putting in very long days, trying to make enough work for all the shows that I'd agreed to do. Uh, this being the culmination, you know, the largest show I've ever done. Um, uh, and I, I, I'm a, looking at it, I am astonished that I managed to make all this much work in eight months. But I really. So it's nearly 20, I think 20, 19 or 20 pieces. Some of the pieces are older, actually. Uh, yes, I, I believe it has sold out. Um, <clears throat> uh, thank you. And, um, but I've decided that I'm going to have a little break now. Um, not for long, maybe a month and a half. I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to spend some time in the Uffizi and uh, looking at art and just gathering my thoughts and seeing what the next move is. But... Um, the strange thing is, I'm already half looking forward to getting back in the studio, oh, though. <laughs> for a month I'm so uh, moved that you had the generosity to make time for us today. Uh, I'm going to just hold you to coming into the studio when, when this slows down and talking to me more about... Are you still teaching? No, no, I haven't taught for a few years. Will you come back and talk to me again when the next shows are happening? Where are the next ones? I haven't planned anything Because you've got a lot of work to do, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. If you haven't uh, been to Cork Street in the past two days since this show's gone up, you must come here. You'll see a line to the door of Saatchi H, a gallery which opened only in September 2020. And you'll be drawn in by the portraits and the paintings and the haunting but comforting paradox of Benjamin Spears' work. Uh, you won't be able to buy it, but that's okay because I'm sure it'll go into some amazing collections. People have been saying that when they fall asleep, they're dreaming about your cats and your big-haired women. Have you heard that before? I haven't heard that, but I can, I can vouch for it because I dream about them when I'm making the work, so it's possible. <laughs> Which piece is your favourite? Uh, if you're going to put me on the spot, I would say I uh, probably Lovers Under a Green Moon, um, which is as you come into the gallery, it's the first painting on the left, and it's a large painting with two figures and a cat. Um, and there is, a, there is a personal meaning in there for me, which I don't particularly feel the need to talk about but um but i just think visually it's it was an ambitious painting and i i really felt like i pulled out all the stops and it yeah i was going to ask you if you could have any work of art past your present money didn't factor into it what would you want to live with that's quite an easy one for me to answer actually and it would be um the uh a painting by velasquez of the court jester which is uh the dwarf and that's in the Prado um, and I'm trying to remember the specific title of that one I think it might be Juan Calabajos uh, but it's a really amazing painting I can see why I can see why I'm going to let you go anyone who hasn't seen the show yet you have to come down and see Desire Lines and look up Benjamin Spears' work if you haven't already you will be captivated thank you so much thank you very much Maeve lovely to meet you lovely to meet you too Thank you for listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. 
I have over 30 years experience in several different countries in the art world and I'm still learning the changing landscape and lexicon and look of what is and isn't the art world and what artists do and don't want to express. So I hope you enjoy taking this journey with me and listening to artists talk in their own voice on a private view, the podcast. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe to the podcast. And on a separate note, the music for A Private View was made specially by Korshid Hami. He has a show on Soho Radio too, so look him up. And thank you for listening. <laughs>